Well, folks, we have been sticking like glue uh, to this Easter-type theme of, guess what? The R word, resurrection, meaning that we are defined by the life of Jesus, what he's done for us and is doing for us. So what kind of Christians are we? Well, we're intractable resurrectionists. You can can tell somebody that sometime. What kind of Christian are you? I'm an intractable resurrectionist. See what they say of that. We are people of the resurrection. That's what we're going to actually explore today. What does it look like to be a people of the resurrection? What I mean by that is, is a group. I'm not talking about individuals. I mean sort of the whole entity, the church. We'll be in First Peter uh, this morning to work through that. He's going to tell us um, what God sees when he looks at us, at his people. And he, he's going to accomplish this through just a slew of identity statements and pictures and images. Um, so this is like God is saying, okay, people of the right resurrection church, here is how I see you. Here is what you are. Now, when I stumble upon these um, really clear identity statements in scripture, things that tell us who we are in Christ and such, my first question is, is that how I see things? Is that how I see it? So as we go through this passage, I, I, do, I want you to constantly be asking yourself, is this how I see things? Is this how I view the people of God? Is this how I see things? Because when it comes to issues of identity, I just, I can't overstate enough how crucial and critical it is to let God reform our hearts, our souls, and our minds around those things. Because what we believe to be true about ourselves or other people or God, and that drives us at such a subterranean sort of fundamental soul level. So as we dig into 1 Peter 2, 1 to 10, I want you to ask yourself constantly, is that how I see things? It see things. Again, very critical with any identity statement in Scripture. So I would encourage you to have your Bibles handy. Uh, and there are certain passages that I preach on that are more narrative, and they're easier to just kind of follow along. It's not a verse-by-verse exposition necessarily. This is going to be more of an exposition, sort of piece-by-piece. Piece. And so I think it will be easier to track with the teaching if you had your Bible handy. So I would encourage you to open to 1 Peter 2, um, verses 1 through 10. So Peter's audience always helps to know who he's talking to, what's the context, uh, just to sort of set the stage for us. These are uh, scattered church of exiled converts. Now, in a small way, I think we can identify a little bit with this. I mean, here's our church, which happens to be spread out over Charlotte. We're not really localized in any one place here. Uh, we're living to a degree in exile from our normal lives, um, and these are Gentiles he's speaking to. So these are people who are aliens, once aliens and outsiders, okay? But they now have been brought into the fellowship of the church. Now, one of the things we need to know, Peter's hoping to encourage them, okay? That's a lot of the reason for this letter. He wants to encourage them. Persecution and suffering in the first century church were not um, unusual and weren't odd. In fact, it was more normative than not. So when we read all these letters, we need to remember, often this is the persecuted church that um, these authors are writing to. So Peter's hoping to encourage them. They're in the midst of persecution, suffering. They're scattered, they're exiles, all this stuff. Now, uh, this passage is steeped in the Old Testament. Almost every verse we stumble on here riffs off an Old Testament quote, or an illusion, or a metaphor. There's stuff from Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah, Hosea, Exodus. So I, I want you to know that. There's these really strong ties that go back to the Old Testament, and I'll try to point them out as we go through them so that they're where they're maybe perhaps not really obvious. Now, Peter's aim 
seems to be in this, and I think this is beautiful, he seems to want to ground uh, his Gentile brothers and sisters in Israel's history, in their past. You know, to fully understand the new covenant, you have to understand the old covenant, or you'll have just a, uh, you won't have a complete understanding. So I think what he's saying here to them as we read this, it's almost like, okay, guys, here's the story you're stepping into. I want you to know it. Uh, here's what happened with God's chosen people, the Jews, before you entered the picture. I want you to understand the family you're a part of now, who you are, where we came from. So there's a, there's a bit of wanting to understand their lineage spiritually, sort of the family tree they're part of, like what is your part in the great salvation story? He wants them to know that. Okay, so that's the setup before we move into this. Okay, so let's, let's move into this, verse 1. And again, listen how Peter describes the people of the resurrection. That's us, his church. And again, I want you to ask yourself, is that how I and we see things? So first verse, we're joining the conversation midstream. He's saying, uh, you know, put off malice, put off hypocrisy, put off envy, put off slander. He's admonishing them to set aside these vices because they hijack or they stunt spiritual growth. This is kind of a transitional statement. He's saying, you got to put these things aside. He's just talked about holiness in chapter one. Okay. So he's saying, put these things aside. If you want to grow, you need to set these things aside and move away from these things. So we're kind of joining that conversation midstream uh, with what's going on in chapter one. So anyway, we go there, we jump to verse two, and he gives us a really great image. Instead, rather than, you know, hypocrisy, and be slander, all these things. Instead, be like newborns. Be like those who crave pure spiritual milk. Now, infants are dependent. Infants are hungry, and they're vocal about their needs. So in some ways, there's some great um, tie-ins with uh, being sheep that we talked about last week. There's some crossover here. Now, Peter is actually using this language in a positive light. It's not always, this milk metaphor is not always a positive thing. Paul and others use milk often in a negative way when they chide a church for essentially refusing to grow up, for wanting to stay children. Remember Paul in, in 1 Corinthians admonishing, let's move from milk to solid food. It's time to do that. Or Hebrews, we see similar language. But here, it's a positive thing. Okay? Mother's milk helps a child to grow and to mature. So they're hungry. That seen as a positive thing. They're commended to grave, crave, excuse me, and spiritual growth is assumed here. So infants grow up. They're not stagnant. So the example here for us is we're to long for spiritual nourishment, the same way a baby might crave milk, which is to say eagerly, uh, frequently, and without regard to the hour, <laughs> which every sleep-deprived mama knows that all too well. Okay, so this is a positive thing. We're to crave a hunger for spiritual nourishment to grow. Now, the milk, speaking of here, spoken of here, which brings about maturity, it's received in and through Christian community, i.e., the church. This is something we shouldn't pass over too quickly because that's the context here. It's not incidental. Peter knows of no other context than the church that he's writing here. So it is the place where we're nurtured. It's the place where we're fed. It's the place where we're raised up into maturity. And he describes this um, 
maturation process is growing up into salvation. That's a little bit in verse two towards the latter. I think this is an interesting phrase because I tend to think of salvation sort of by default, and it's probably my background, is sort of a, a once and done thing, i.e. That, that moment of conversion. But this process of maturity Peter describes here is an ongoing formative work that's uh, of the Holy Spirit that's anchored in the work of the cross of Christ. So we're nurtured in the church. We are formed as believers in the church. We're raised up into maturity in the church. We grow up in our salvation in the church. So think of it this way. It's like we have this stature that we're growing up into, how God sees us, that picture of us that he has that's hidden in Christ. So we're ever uh, rising up into this stature in response to the gift of salvation. So we're trying to stir that well, live in that intentionally, et cetera, et cetera. This is just a long way of describing, in some ways, sanctification. If indeed, verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we're to crave this milk, if indeed we've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's riffing off of Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Again, a very vulnerable picture of finding rest and sustenance in God. When I see the if indeed, for me, that is the language of confirmation. Um, our response to such a great salvation, right, tasting the Lord's goodness, is to rope into it, just like Peter has described. So that's the relationship of gratitude and grace here. That's the taste of God's goodness that's so sweet and so evident in salvation. It's actually meant to cause more hunger in us. So we experience the Lord. The more we do, the more we take delight in him, the more we want. So it's kind of like this divine growth cycle. Those of you who are fans of C.S. Lewis, think of the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Think of Turkish delight, right? This is the redemptive form of that, <laughs> okay? This is the redemptive form of Turkish delight. It's kind of like that. We crave, and the more we taste of God, the more we want of God. And we're commended to that. So already, we, people of the resurrection, the church, in three verses, are described uh, in this way, and I'm going to kind of boil it down to the essentials. Uh, hungry for God, we hunger after him, dependent upon God, okay, and growing in God. So it's assumed that we grow. There's no picture of a stagnant Christianity here. It's just not there. Uh, there's no spiritual barnacles or spiritual uh, freeloaders in the church. The people who grasp grace grow. That's just the normative picture. And this nurture, uh, this maturation happens in the context of community, in the, in the context of the church. This is God's design. So a lot in first three verses, and some very powerful pictures I find. Verses four and following, Peter is really going to uh, turn up the heat, step on the gas. He's going to pull on the Old Testament all the more here and show how New Testament believers are the new people of God. Everybody's grafted into this great salvation story. And I'll kind of take it in chunks, verses 4 to 6, 7 and 8, uh, 9 and 10, focusing mainly on 4 to 6 and, and 9 and 10. So 4 to 6, beautiful picture, uh, the temple of God, the new temple. As you come to him, a living stone. This is worship language from the start. 
when you draw near to him, some of your translations say, when you come before the Lord. The picture here is this is like a priest now enjoying the privilege of approaching God very freely. We'll see this later. Not if you approach God, but as you approach God. Jesus has already alluded to Psalm 118.22 during his ministry. Remember this? The stone that the builders rejected, that's become the cornerstone. He's already said that. He's already called himself the cornerstone. So what Peter's trying to do here is connect some dots for us uh, on this idea that cornerstone, Jesus said he was. That's the living stone that Peter is talking about here. The idea being pretty, pretty simple. We all get this. Living stone, that's the foundation of a building. Everything rests upon it. Everything is built upon it without it. It's the firm, it's Christ our firm foundation to think about him. So this stone rejected by the world, no surprise, but chosen, precious to God. Tozer says it best here, to be right with God is often meant to be in trouble with men. That's sort of Jesus's ministry right there. And we're part of that. We're part of that. Christ, the living stone, but you yourselves, is verse 5, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. So, folks, we're people stones, I guess is a good way to put it, being built up into this house. This is a metaphor you're familiar with. You know this from the New Testament, the household of God. That's what this is talking about. All these mentions of priesthood, Sacrifice is coming near. Uh, we're reminded that not only is this where sure, we live and, and abide, but this is where God dwells too. This is the temple of God. So there's this beautiful, rich, evocative worship language, this temple imagery. It's just too strong to say otherwise. So we're the living stones of God's house, and he's present with us. This is consonant with thinking of ourselves as the body of Christ, right? Now, let's, let's observe here just for a sec. There's no sense here, the way Peter describes it, there's no like extraneous stones or solitary stones kind of lying about here and there. Every stone is part of the house, God's house. One stone you can't do a lot with, but you put us all together, we're a temple. Uh, it's glorious. So the Holy Spirit makes us into uh, a spiritual temple, living stones. Perhaps this helps kind of bring the picture together. Here's a quote. We have to wonder if the recent memory of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, think about that, with all its chiseled megaliths lying scattered and broken, is part of the inspiration behind Peter's reliance on all the stone imagery. Though the tr traditional dwelling place of God is gone, and it is, a new house has in fact arisen in its place with a royal priesthood in attendance. To me. While the old stones appear to be dead, the living stones of the church, founded on the cornerstone of Christ, will now be the light that overcomes the darkness. Very poignant when you think of it that way. The temple, gone, destroyed. And yet, where is the new temple of God? Where does God reside? Well, in his people, in his people, in the praises of his people. So to summarize, uh, verses 4 and 5, as you continue to come to God in worship, Y'all, all, all y'all, we, you're being built up into a temple, into a place where God fully dwells. So the Lord continues to make his home in us. He sort of remodels us as we go, <laughs> making us a fit, holy place for him to reside. 
sanctifying us along the way, growing us up into this salvation, Peter says, a holy people who reflect his glory. See, I lay a stone in Zion, very familiar uh, verse to you, six. A chosen, a precious cornerstone, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Again, Old Testament, indirect quote of Isaiah 28, 16. This is Jesus, the cornerstone of the new temple. Uh, this is his church, okay? We get to verses seven and eight, and I won't land on this very hard because I think it's just clear. Uh, there's some that reject Christ. To us, the stone is precious. To others, it's a stumbling block, a rock of stumbling, or, or a rock of, of offense, right? Um, but as for you, and this is getting to verses nine and 10, and we'll really kind of try to bring things home here, but it's for you who are joined with Christ. Listen to this, identity statement after identity statement. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. That's pulling from Exodus for sure. And you are God's special possession. Every single one of these is an Old Testament descriptor of Israel. Now used of us, okay? All of those that you may declare, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and to his marvelous light. Love this. This is that old recurring call in the Old Testament to remember God's mighty acts, to celebrate them, especially the Exodus. So this is, the picture is this. God bringing his people out of the land of slavery, that's the darkness, out of Egypt, and into the promised land. That is his marvelous light. And what a wonderful line. This might be my favorite line in the whole passage. Once you are not a people, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You've now been met by the mercy of God. I mean, that is knocked down awesome. He's quoting Hosea here, 2.23. So in other words, you're, you're, you're not a pile of, let me beat the metaphor to death a little bit here. You're not a pile of individual stones. You're not an isolated heap of rubble. You are now the new temple of living stones. You're part of something. You've been grafted into the great salvation story. You're not isolated individuals anymore. You are family now. You belong now. Now, what a powerful message for people who are exiles and outsiders to say, you know what? You belong. You are part of something. You're beloved. You're special to the Lord. And you're part of this glorious worshiping community because you'll notice a temple <laughs> Done. That's a worship image. You're part of this. So let me, I'm going to kind of give you a bullet point list of all these images Peter is uh, drawing upon and identity statements by default in verses 4 through 10. Because what Peter's saying here is that basically those blessings that were promised to Israel in the Old Testament, they're now bestowed upon the church. New Testament believers. So as the church, the people of the resurrection, we are, and here's the identity statements I said to watch for, God's dwelling place, okay, where his glory dwells. It's no longer about the physical temple, not about that. It's about, it's now us. So this isn't built by human hands. This is a temple that cannot be torn down. I love this. This is why the church will always endure, always, the gates of hell. And prevail against it. You can destroy a building, but you cannot destroy the church because the church is fundamentally a people. It's us. So we, the church, 
We're the glory of God in the world. We are the beacon of resurrection. That's what we're called to be. God's all in place. That's one thing. Two, chosen race. No longer is it about being a physical descendant of Abraham. It's not about that. Followers of Jesus are now chosen race. And we're chosen out of grace and love, lest we get to feel too privileged about this, right? So it's a very grateful, humble thing to be part of this. Chosen race. Chosen priesthood. Royal priesthood. Pardon me. That ancient order of priests, remember, they came from me. Used to offer the uh, sacrifices to God. Well, guess what? Now everyone is part of that royal priesthood. You and I, everyone. We have this scandalous and unprecedented level of access to God. Don't you love the strong priests of all believers theme here? I do. This was a really important passage for the Reformers. Everybody matters. Everybody's part of the priesthood. Every single one of you. And a holy nation. Another identity statement. So no longer is it about Israel. It is about all Christians. Everyone who makes up this nation. Jew, Gentile, everybody. So uh, we're a spiritual nation. So let's think about this. This is a good corrective for some of us. Geography, human heritage, race, nationality, those are no longer a barrier to entry. If you've been rescued by Jesus, you're part of the family, period. Period. No one's privileged above others in this whole nation. So it's a beautiful picture, and it transcends time and geography and all these things. This is the church. Now, uh, kind of wrapping things up here. That's a lot to take. I think that's a lot to take in, to go, that's us? Really? That's how God sees us? Yeah, people of the Resurrection Church, that's who we are. That's how God sees us. And it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. It's all because of that cornerstone. I mean, can you believe how Peter describes this here? I'm flabbergasted by that. I mean, what a stature to inhabit, and, and what a, a stature to rise up, grow up into. That's how God sees us? We are special to him? Yes, we are. Now, I, I think there's an additional comfort here to know, and it's probably particular to this time, but I think it's true. Um, I think it's an additional comfort to know that we're not alone. <laughs> we're not alone, but rather that we belong in this story. We belong in this family, and that we matter, right? that the house of the Lord isn't complete without you, isn't complete without me, isn't complete without us. Folks from all walks of life make up this body. Now, lest we forget the temple in Jerusalem, uh, both iterations, um, and think back to even the tabernacle and all those descriptions back in Leviticus and such, um, it was to be a glorious and a beautiful place. That's how it was designed. It was designed to inspire awe and gratitude and to uh, just sort of inspire us um, to worship. That still holds true for this spiritual house. So God's enduring spiritual house, you and me, church, we're to be all that and more. If we could only see ourselves as God does, for we are to be glorious and beautiful, and to inspire awe and gratitude, to be that beacon of the resurrection out in the world. Folks, this is how God sees us. This is who we are. This is how you are. And all because of that precious cornerstone of 
Jesus, all because of what he's done for us and all because of what he is doing for us. That's us, folks, the people of the resurrection, the church.